D-I-V-O-R-C-E. It's kind of got a rhythm, doesn't it? But no one's really writing songs about divorce. It's tough and it's painful. But it's not the end. There's a chance for a new start and a new perspective. There's hope after divorce. This is Signs of the Times Radio with Kent Kingston. Hey, it's great to have you back with us on Signs of the Times Radio. And I have with me Deanna Pitchford. She's a clinical psychologist who's been practicing for 11 years. Now, Deanna, you must have seen a lot of different issues and, and struggles and, and situations in that time. I certainly have, Kent. And my main focus in my practice has been to work with women. And one of the issues that we often face would be relationship issues. Relationships are very important to women and this is often something that brings them into therapy because they struggle with relationships and have difficulties in that area. So that is something that we often talk about. Wow. Okay. So that I guess that would have encompassed a, a wide range of issues. I mean, all, all the way from things like, you know, how, how did the family you, you grew up in sort of affect the way you relate to your partner, you know, all the way through to this marriage is on the rocks and all the way through to, I guess, what yes. uh, family violence and that sort of thing. Certainly. And what the effect of relationship difficulties in people's lives, often it results in depression or anxiety. Those are the most common presentations that we deal with. But there are often some underlying things that come from the way we were raised and the early experiences that we have. And so those are some of the things that we have to deal with when we, when we meet with clients. Okay. All right. Well, I mean, my background is actually uh, originally in social work. So, you know, I, I guess I feel like I have a lot in common with you and would, you know, I guess sort of understand perhaps some of, of, of what you do. When you approach a client, I mean, there are different approaches, different methodologies, you know, different forms of counseling and, and therapy. What's your s- sort of general approach and what are the principles you, you put into place when it, when it comes to, you know, dealing with, you know, all these sorts of issues? It comes from, my approach is a kind of a hybrid approach, I would think, Mm -hmm. because it comes from my training. I started doing psychology in South Africa before, well, before we came to Australia, obviously. Mm -hmm. And we, I studied at the university and did a degree in counseling psychology. And I learned some of the more psychoanalytic and client-centered approaches there. And When I came to Australia and then did my master's in clinical psychology, I found that there was a great emphasis on CBT, so cognitive behavioral therapy. Okay. And what I I tend to do is really a a, a very client-focused approach. That is my basic approach. Mm -hmm. But I try to inform that approach with all the best knowledge that I have from the studies I've done in cognitive behavioral therapy And I'm very intrigued by the whole concept of the acceptance and commitment therapy approach. There seems to me to be a lot of wisdom in that approach. Okay. All right. 
Well, let, let's let, let's just to define some of these terms you know, for, for yes. people. So when, when you say a client-centered approach, what you're talking about is proceeding from that client's frame of reference. You know, what are their values? What is yes. their experience? What is the language they use to to describe what they've been through? So you're you're very you very much believe in in that as an important starting point, and to I guess what uphold and affirm that that client's um, perspective. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. There's no point in trying to to impose your own framework or your own worldview on somebody else. But you've got to start where they are mm-hmm. and move with them to a new place. If they want to go to a new place, you've got to start where they are okay. and then move on to where they want to go. All right. And and cognitive behavioural therapy, if, if I remember correctly, like, looks at those interactions between the, the thoughts we have in our minds, the, the feelings we have in our hearts, and, and then the way we, we act those things out and to look at how those things link to one another and reinforce one another and perhaps if there are I guess destructive patterns to identify those where, where does it come from is it the feelings is it the thoughts is it the behavior that's reinforcing it and how do we sort of break break that pattern is is that uh, a, a good summary a reasonable summary that is a very good summary Kent it's a very good summary and it has it certainly has um, a great body of research that supports the effectiveness of cognitive behavioral therapy yeah. But there are other other approaches that have come after that and perhaps some newer insights which say that perhaps it's not so important to fight with those thoughts or those feelings when they come, hmm. rather to let them acknowledge that they're there yeah. and then let them go, let them pass, let them let them move through your mind like clouds across the sky mm-hmm. and not engage with them and believe everything that you think. So it's it's a kind of a, a very good common sense approach, this acceptance and commitment therapy approach. So mm. that's probably the one that I ascribe to most strongly. Okay, that's that's really interesting. Okay, so in some ways, there's a it sounds like there's a little bit of externalization there, where you, you sort of you sort of step back from those feelings yes. and and observe them a little bit and and identify them. I guess like sometimes with anxiety attacks, for example, they encourage people to say, okay, well, let's just step back and you know, what are you feeling? Yes, your heart's beating. Yes, your breath is you know coming quite quick and fast. You're having thoughts and feelings like this and that. That's an anxiety attack, and then and a similar sort of thing, you know, to, to step back and observe as a way to, I guess, gain control over it, and then say, okay, what do I need to do? Slow my breathing, you know, or have thoughts about whatever. So similar sort of stuff. Connections there. Yes, that that is a good. That would be the the the, the crux of the approach, really, because what we are saying is we're acknowledging that these things do exist. We do sense these feelings, but we don't accord them perhaps the value or the importance they would like us to. So we don't believe every thought that comes through our heads. We don't react to every physical response that we might sense in our bodies. So we let these things go, we acknowledge them, and then we we simply externalize them, as you've said, mm. by imagining that they are passing through us and going, just passing on, just leaving us. Because the truth of the matter is that when you do feel or think something, it doesn't stay with you forever. Those thoughts and those feelings often pass on. And when you have had a good sleep or you've had a good run or you've had a, you know, done something fun or had a good laugh, those feelings don't seem quite so important and those thoughts don't take hold of you as much. Mm. So it's just, it's just a very good way of really managing them and also acknowledging that we are human, that we have these emotions, we have these thoughts. 
they do come upon us and it's quite a normal response to the stresses of life. Mm. But we don't have to engage with each and every thought and each and every feeling or sensation that we experience. Yeah, I guess some of those thoughts and feelings can, if you do give into them, like you say, it's sort of like being sucked down into the vortex, you know, where they sort of spiral and spiral and spiral and um, reinforce one another and until, you know, the whole thing feels very catastrophic. Yes. And, of course, catastrophic feelings, those are those particular ones. One of the, the sets of feelings or thoughts that um, cognitive behavioral therapy targets. And you can certainly dispute them, dispute those thoughts and those, those, um, those sensations and feelings. But often when you just look at them and say, well, this is the way I am feeling right now, but I know it won't last forever. This is going to pass by. This mm. is going to go away. This will settle it kind of gives you a sense of control. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So something that I, I do find interesting is that, you know, as you say, you know, you, you lean towards cognitive behavioural therapy, and that has sometimes been, I guess, defined in opposition to, you know, looking down into your deep dark past and, you know, looking at your childhood and, and, and all that sort of stuff. You know, CBT has been the therapy that's about the here and now and let's not bother too much about the past. But nevertheless, in this article that you've written for us, you have gone right back to the past when you were you were three years old and, and your parents divorced and you, you have dredged up these memories and you've brought some insights from there. So uh, what's what's going on, the, on there, Deanna? CBT is good for your clients? But, but not yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Kent, I think that comes from my training in South Africa where I had a more psychoanalytic training yes. which does tend to look at the past and yeah. which does tend to, which says that the way we are raised and the things that we experience when we are young are incredibly important in shaping us for the future. Mm. And so I, I do believe that those things are important and this is why I'm saying that my approach to clients would be kind of a hybrid approach, a kind of an eclectic approach mm. where I, I certainly would, would, would go down this pathway if this is the way clients wanted to go, mm. if there were things that they wanted to explore from the past. Because as you can see from my article, I acknowledge that these early experiences have most certainly shaped me into the kind of person I am today. There's no doubt about that. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, well tell, us, tell us about that. So you're, you were three years old when your, your parents separated. I mean, do you have any sort of insight into, into how that happened or, or why that happened? And, and can you remember how, how you felt at the time? I can't remember how I felt, Kent, but I can remember some of the some of the more practical aspects of of that separation because my I had a baby sister. She was nine months old. Mm. So my mother and father split. They there was there was a big age gap between the two of them. Mm. They I I suspect there was some family violence there. Wow. And my mother left then with these two little children, so baby in arms and her three-year-old, and we went to my grandparents' home. So that's what I remember. And those are, those are my earliest memories uh, of living with my grandparents, my mother's parents. And it was an acrimonious divorce, to mm. say the least. I remember that there was a lot of conflict and I have I have memories of great sadness yeah. around that time and I think possibly not the same kind of happy memories that many people have of their childhood. So I remember 
arguments, you know, raised voices and all kinds of very distressing things for a young child. And my sister being so much younger than myself, she doesn't have those memories. She she just grew up with my in my grandparents' home and remembers, the, you know, the love and the care that we had there. Mm. So she doesn't have that same, I think possibly that same baggage that maybe that I carry with me. Boy. And those mm. those memories are there. And so as you grow older, you can you have a choice, I think, to allow those things to dominate your thinking and to make you always feel as though you're on the outer. Because that's one of the that's one of the big things that I found when my parents divorced was I felt very different to other children. Right. Okay. We um, I was in a Christian school. And I think I was one of the very, very few children in the Christian school whose parents were divorced. Mm-hmm. And it does make you feel different. It makes you feel very much that, wow, I I don't know that I fit in here, you know. Everyone else has a mum and a dad who go to things together and you go to their homes and you and you can see that, you know, the mum and the dad sleep in one bedroom and... Um, you know, it's all kinds of things like that that, that make, bring it home to you that you are different mm, to the other kids. Mm. So when, when you're working with, uh, with women now, I mean, obviously divorce is much more common. And yes. in fact, you know, occasionally, you know, someone will say, oh, you know, we've been married for 45 years. And someone will say, goodness me, I don't know anyone who's married for that long. You know, it seems like everyone <laughs> I know is divorced. Um, do you... Social, the, the sort of social context around divorce has changed quite, quite a lot. Has that reduced the, the impact and, and that sense of, of being on the outer? Um, has that made it easier for divorced people, do you think? Or are the problems still there or just different? That's a good question. I haven't seen any, any research that says that it has any less of an effect on children than it had in the past. Mm. The, the children, I, I haven't had a, a primarily child-focused practice, but the children mm. that I have seen over the years, they always, and, and I think this is, a, this is still a common thing, they do wish that their parents could somehow reconcile and mm. patch this up. Yeah, and yeah. certainly in, in, my, in my heart as well, there was always the hope that perhaps things could get better. They could find a way of living together without fighting. Mm-hmm. So I, I think the I think the effect is still there. Certainly socially, it seems not to be such a big deal these days. If you if you do get divorced, mm-hmm. I in my in my practice, whenever anybody has come along and said I'm thinking about divorce, I have always counselled them to reconsider mm. and to try and work it out. It has never ever been my first recommendation. I think this is. This is hopeless. This this cannot work. Hmm. You know, unless it's a situation where there is danger to to the family, where there's family violence or a danger of someone hmm. uh, harmed, I I would always say, look, let's see what can we do about this. How can we, you know, is is this possible? And so it's never been my my first approach has never been well. This is you know this is hopelessly. So let's look at how you can separate amicably. Yeah. My first approach has always been, this is my default approach. And perhaps it comes from this experience I've had as a child. Mm. But I know the effect it has on children. And the effect also that I saw in my mother's life, the fact that I could see her being 
having a really hard life being a divorced woman. Mm -hmm. And some of that had to do with with, with the social context, but some of it also just had to do with being on your own and having to struggle to raise two children very much on your own. Do you think it's possibly also, because I I mean, I can see in your article that you do sort of come from a a Christian background. I mean, I've seen you at my church, so I know know you you have a Christian faith. I mean, people's feelings about marriage, well, some people anyway, appear to be changing. Um, You know, people are changing their vows to, instead of, you know, to death to us part, they're changing it to as long as our love shall last. And (laughs) and there's sort of, there's, I guess that expectation of, you know, lifetime monogamy is, has been reduced by a lot of people, but, but yet you say you would like to see divorce as a sort of a, a last resort. Is that just your, you know, conservative Christian views speaking, or do you actually have good clinical reasons why why you think it's best for a, a couple to stay together if if at all possible i mean aside from issues like abuse as you mentioned both of those things are important i think that my it's not just my my maybe conservative church background but it is also what i've seen in in society and in the people that i have counseled having a family having roots in a family can be a very positive thing. Mm. Sometimes it is not. Sometimes for some people it's, it can be quite a toxic, destructive situation. But yes. mostly people who have family, support family, family connections, those people thrive better. We all need connection. Mm. We need connection. And to be, to be cut off, to be isolated is a very damaging experience in life. Mm-hmm. And there is nothing quite like the, the word says it all. Divorce says it all. You know, if there's this big divide between two people, yeah. and if but if there are children involved, these two people who've now said we cannot live together anymore still have to have a lot of contact with one another, usually because of the children and, and issues around access and caring for the children, and they are always for the rest of life. Really, they are they are connected. They mm, cannot. Mm you know, get away from that. The research still says that children who have, who grow up with a lot of conflict and hearing parents fight, those children do retain some kind of... It it has an impact. It has an impact, doesn't it? It it has an impact. It certainly has an impact. It has an impact. So in some cases, I suppose maybe it would be better if the children were not exposed to that kind of Mm. conflict. Yeah. But in most cases, it is better for us to be embedded in a family context and to have those have those connections. Mm. And, that, and, um, and there certainly that, is research, isn't there, that, that shows that uh, a child with their biological mum and biological dad is is statistically you know likely to be you know better off in terms of you know long term outcomes, um, less risk taking behaviour and, and that and that sort of thing. I mean, you know, family structure does turn out to be important not not in every case obviously like you're saying you know some yes. you don't want shouting and conflict and all that sort of thing but, but yes. i guess that that's the other side to what family structure does seem to be important it does seem to be, be, be important but for people you know i don't don't want people who are listening who are divorced perhaps mm. who, who face the prospect of of going through this don't want them to be discouraged by this because the research also shows that a child needs one constant caregiver, at least one, mm-hmm. one person in their life that takes an interest and that guides them and, and directs them, and then they turn out okay. Yeah. So yeah. 
there's always hope. And I think the point of my article, what I really wanted to emphasize in this article was the fact that no matter what your circumstances are when you, as a child and, and, and the way you grew up, there are, there are still things, that, good things that can come out of even bad situations. Sure. And having, having a Christian background makes me incredibly grateful that there is a God who can turn bad things into good things or bring something good out mm, of a bad mm. thing. Okay. Well, and, and you're right. I mean, the, the emphasis of your article is very much about your admiration for your mum. You know, she was going through a, a really tough time at a time where, you know, as you say in your article, you know, divorce was very much had a stigma attached to it. But nevertheless, you give us sort of six sort of positive or, or I guess hints really for people who are going through, might be going through divorce now or have gone through divorce as to how, you know, as I said in my entry, you know, not just to survive, but to, but to thrive. Can, can you take yes. us through, um, through some of those tips that you gave in your article? Yes, I used the, I used the acronym BRIDGE. Mm-hmm. So I, I said, you know, to, to bridge this great divide, we need to build a bridge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And so what I've used, I've used the, um, I've been, the, the B stands for buttressing the sense of family. Mm-hmm. And so even when there is divorce in the family, there can still be a sense of connection with family. Sure. Because we had, we had connections, we'd certainly had connections with our dad. My mum never stopped us from seeing him and he would, he would come and visit us regularly, take us to the park and take us out, take us on camps to junior camps, etc. So we, we had connection with him and we also had connections with our with our other family members. So mm. um, grandparents and that sort of thing. Mm. Yes, grandparents mm. and aunts and uncles. So this helped to fill a lot of the gaps in our lives because we had still had this perception of, of being part of a family. And this is why I think it's important to remember that even though life doesn't always turn out as the textbook would, would say it should, they can still be good things that mm. we can do to help children feel connected yeah, to family yeah. and to, to friends. So that was the first thing. So I've buttressed the sense of family, build it up, make it strong okay. um, in whatever way we can, yes. All right, so so bridge, B-R-I-D-G-E. So, so that was B for buttress yes. the sense of family. Uh, what, what about R? R was about reinventing your life because this is what I saw my mother doing. She worked, sometimes worked at two jobs, you know, she did a day job and then I think she did market research, which in those days meant going from house to house in the, in the early evenings, which could not have been an easy job for a single oh, woman no. to do. Yeah. <laughs> but she did that and she, she became very successful in her role as a, as a personal secretary and she always had a good style, a sense of style. I liked watching her, mm-hmm. you know, when she was ready to go out to work. She always looked good. She, she gave this sense of competence and so it gave me something as a woman to aspire to that I also wanted to exude that sense of confidence mm. and competence. Mm. Even when life's tough, you, you sort of, hey. Even when life's tough. Yeah, yes. yeah. You keep your yes. chin up and you, you get out there and, and reinvent yourself yes. as, as you say. Okay, yes. so um, what, what about I? I was, she invested in friendship. She, this is one of the great life lessons that I really learned from my mother and that mm. was to cultivate friendships because some of my happiest childhood memories are of times we had in the homes of other friends, kind friends who embraced my mum and her children mm. and really made us feel part of their family. And it came about because she put thought and effort into 
friendship. Friendship mm. is important. And she modeled that for us very, very well. I, I guess it's a it's a similar point to your first one, you know, about um, you know buttressing that sense of family. That um, if yes. you if you are in a situation where where you're divorced, and but particularly, I guess if well, even if you don't have kids, uh, it's important to surround yourself with with people who yes. will give you support, people who will you know uh, help will remind you that that you belong. Yes, yes. So friendship, friendship and cultivating friendship circles. We need to put effort and we need to put time into doing that because it has a lot of it has a lot of good effects in our lives. Okay, all right. And now D, you've got um in your article you wrote D dilute the negativity. What's what's that all about? <laughs> well, you know, she it wasn't possible for her to shield us from all the negative effects of the divorce. Mm. There are many negative things, many unpleasant things that happen in in that kind of situation, but there were enough other positive factors to help us still have a sense of, of the goodness of life. Mm. For example, I, I do mention in the article that my mum bought a piano for us when I was nine years old. Mm. And that must have been quite something because we lived in units and apartments that were you know, a few stories up. So whenever we moved, and we did have to move quite often, as you do when, you, when you're renting, mm. the, this piano had to be moved from place to place. But it provided it became it provided a lot of comfort for me and it, it certainly gave me a love for music and just gave me comfort and, and beauty and grace. It became a symbol of beauty and grace mm. for me. And, and a and, sense of um, home, I guess. Yes, a sense of home and the fact that she had done this because she thought it would be good for us to, to, to learn the piano and to, you know, to have that skill as well. So mm-hmm. there are many different ways in which you can dilute the negativity, but this was one thing that stands out for me in my, in my childhood. Yeah. Would, would another thing be perhaps, it's really sad to see that sometimes in these situations that are you know, acrimonious as, as your parents' divorce mm. was, it's, it's really sad to see and it's understandable from a human point of view, but the parents seem to want to try to recruit the kids to, to their side of the, um, yeah. of, of the argument and the kids feel yeah. like, you know, they're in the middle of it and it's like they have to take sides or, or something. I mean, is, I guess diluting the negativity w- would be to protect your kids from that and to say, you know what, there are some things that are adult issues and there are some things yeah. that, that are kids' issues and this is perhaps something that, you know, mum and dad need to sort out, you know, with, with adult help rather yeah. than dragging the kids into it. I mean, I don't know, am, am I idealistic about that, thinking that, you know, divorced parents that, should, should avoid that? That certainly is the ideal. I don't think it always happens that way. I know in, in our situation, there were times when my mother probably told me more than I needed to know. Yeah. And I can understand that from, from a, a human point of view, as you say, you know, mm. she, she needed somebody to talk to. Yeah. But I think if we can minimize that, and if that does happen, as you say, balancing it out with something positive, and helping children to move forward and not to be stuck in the in the dis, in the disputes and the and the arguments of the past, I think that's a very yeah, helpful thing. Sure. Okay. Um, well, what about G in your uh, in your acronym? I've said G. I've said go for gold. And right. what I meant by that was that my mother held us to a very high standard of behaviour and achievement. She mm-hmm. she hit she she held her head high. Um, at church, in society, when we went out, you know, despite the fact that, as as we've said before, it wasn't the norm in in the sixties for uh, for people to get divorced, mm. not as not quite as well accepted as it is now. She just gave us the sense of 
that we needed to to do the best we could mm-hmm. and that we needed to aim high and to and to hold our heads high and I think it's been a very good life lesson too. Yeah, wow. So just just because um you know your parents might divorce be divorced it's it's no excuse to be sort of, you know, a- average and, and mediocre. You you need to get out there and, yes. and do your best. Yeah. Now that's that sounds yes. great. And and the E, uh, you've got embrace the present here. That that sounds good. It is good. There were lots of memories from my childhood that I still carry with me now. There were family traditions. So things that my mother did, they often revolved around cooking, I must admit. Mm. You know, she would make special meals or a Sunday afternoon was a special time for baking or making something special for, for tea on a Sunday night. And I've never forgotten that sense of home and family and that, that good feeling you get when there's a good smell of food in the house. Mm-hmm. That's been something that has stayed with me over the years. And I often on a Sunday afternoon, I get this I get this itch to just go to the kitchen and make something nice, you know, mm. bake something or just make some, some nice food. So these are some of the memories that she's left with us, small traditions that really help me to help me to remember those years with some sense of fondness, even though there were sad times as well. There mm. were good mm. times too. Oh, she sounds like an incredible woman, Dan. I, I can see why you um, why you look up to her so much and why you've sort of you know sought to em- emulate her in in your life is is she uh, still with us or is is she at rest no now, no she died in 2013 mm-hmm. and kent you know one of the things that i have had to do over the years is that i've had to balance out some she wasn't perfect mm. by no means who was is? she a saint who is and by no means did she do everything correctly she she you know textbook wise but I've had to, over the years, I've had to look at it and, and, and gather from my childhood those positive things that I can mm. and look at them and, and be grateful for what each of my parents have contributed to my life. And so I acknowledge that she was, there were many things that she did wrong, I think. Mm. And I, I struggled with my, with my relationship with my mother, to be quite honest, for a very, very long time. Yeah. And it's not always been easy. And when I was asked to write this article, I was thinking, what am I going to say? How am I going to f- frame this? Yes. What I wanted to do was to show that even though times are hard, people still have it within them. And if they cultivate that, they can cultivate that, that positive aspect and that positive approach to life. And this is what I think she did. So when I think back on my childhood, I want to remember the good things that came out of it. I acknowledge that there were things that were not good mm. and things that were really hard. But I want to remember my mother for the positive impact that she did have in my life. Yeah, and and, wow. and my father as well, both of them. Mm. I've had to spend time working on that. I can't say that I've had therapy for it, but I suppose yep. I've done my own therapy really. <laughs> yes. <laughs> in this regard. Fair enough. Oh, that that's really great. Thanks so much for, for being so vulnerable with us, Deanna, and, and sharing, you know, some of some of your life and some of your experiences and the and the wisdom that you've you've learnt from there. I, I really appreciate you um yeah being with us here on, on Signs of the Times Radio today. Thank you, Kent. Today's episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Signs of the Times magazine. A subscription is just $26 for 11 issues a year. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au. 
Signs of the Times has been published in Australia since 1886 and is proudly produced by Adventist Media. This is an Adventist Media podcast. 